Now there are some things that just amaze us. Take the seven wonders of the world. Now apparently, there is no official list of these seven wonders. But I thought I would still give you a test. Is that okay? Thank you. Now see if you can guess some of these wonders of the world. Okay? And there are no prizes, by the way. Now the first one. It's quite easy. Pyramids of Egypt. Built during the fourth Egyptian dynasty as tombs for the pharaohs. Next one. The Eiffel Tower in France. The place where people get engaged. So if you're invited to Paris one time, beware, you might end up getting engaged. Third one. Any ideas? The Taj Mahal in India. I was on Indian business one time and I saw it and it's really impressive. And it was built by a ruler of India in 1631 as a tribute to his wife. Fourth one. It's a wee bit trickier this one. Any ideas? The Great Wall of China, yes. And apparently, you can see even from space. And it's over, it's over 4,000 miles long. Fifth one. Yeah. The Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy. You can almost just push it over. Number six. You're doing well, by the way. You're doing very well. Yep, I didn't realise that. Um, it was a gift from the French to the Americans, apparently. And the last one. Any ideas? Yes, whoever said that, spot on. It was, built within the royal, it was built within the walls of the royal palace back in ancient Babylon. And we look at these wonders of the world and they amaze us. However, seven centuries before Christ, two groups of people had far greater cause to be amazed. Why? Because they were about to see the greatness of God. Now one of these groups was Assyria, the greatest empire of its day. Now a century earlier, God had sent a messenger called Jonah to Nineveh, Assyria's capital city. And Jonah came with an urgent message. Repent. And that's what they did. But now the Assyrian Empire was at the peak of its power. It was huge. Its borders stretched from the Persian Gulf, hope you can see that okay, through modern day Iraq, and down into Egypt. It was the most powerful empire of its day. And here was, here's what it specialised in. Cruelty. It was a ruthless empire. And one of its victims was Judah, God's covenant people in the Old Testament. So God sent a messenger called Nahum from a place called Elkosh. But this time the message was, Nineveh would fall forever. She would never rise again. And that is a message found in the Old Testament book that bears this messenger's name. It's one of the books we call the Minor Prophets because of its short length. And you can see Nahum on the graph on the screen. Now, here's some background. Until the time of King Solomon, the nation of Israel was united. However, after Solomon's death, the nation separated. Israel was a northern kingdom, and Judah 
was the southern kingdom. In 722 BC, as you can see on the, on the graph, Israel was crushed by Assyria. And now, 100 years later, Nahum comes with a message from God. And, it's, and that is the background to this book of Nahum. And it's here that we learn something about the unchanging character of God. And it's this. Our God is an awesome God. In his book, Knowing God, Jim Packer writes about what it means to know God and to know the greatness of God. This is what he says. What makes life worth living is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? So let's look at the book of Nahum together under the title, Standing in Awe of God. Now there are three chapters, but let's look at one of the key passages, chapter 1. And it's on page number 937 of the Pew Bibles. When you last heard a sermon from the book of Nahum. In fact, the first sermon I have ever heard on the book of Nahum in a church is this one. So I hope you enjoy it. But it's a powerful book. And we find here three features of God's character. And each brings a sense of awe and wonder of God. Firstly, we stand in awe at the justice of God. Now there are two things to notice about the justice of God. His jealousy and his vengeance. So firstly, God is a jealous God. If you look at verse 2, we read, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now, if you walk down Princess Street and you ask people what they thought of God, Give me an adjective to describe God. I can guarantee you that few, if any, would say that God is jealous. And even Christians can find this a difficulty. For what does it mean when the Bible says here that our God is a jealous God? And we see it in Exodus chapter 34, where God says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And how can jealousy, which is described in the Bible as a sin, be attributed to God? Well, the answer is quite simply, there are two different kinds of jealousy, good and bad. Just as there are two different kinds of anger, righteous and unrighteous anger. John Stott writes very helpfully, This is what he says. Jealousy is the resentment of rivals. And whether this is good or evil depends on whether the rival has any business to be there. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty, brains or sport is sinful because we cannot claim a monopoly of talent in those areas. And so the question is, do these rivals have a business to be there or not? Now let me give you an example. A few years ago, 
I walked the West Highland Way with a friend. And it was great fun. Except for the midges. They were awful. Now the walk is 95 miles long. Okay? It starts in Mulgai near Glasgow. And it finishes in Fort William. Now we thought we were quite fit. We did. So we set a target for the whole walk. Six days. And that makes it about 16 miles per day. You don't look very impressed. We thought that was tremendous. But here's what happened. As we walked along, this guy who was at least twice my age, I'm looking at no one by the way, just went walking right past us. And here's what he said. He said he was doing the walk in half hour time, in only three days. Now, he was twice my age, okay? And get this, he was recovering from a leg injury. I know, humiliating. So how do you think I felt? How would you have felt? Who does he think he is? You know, that green-eyed monster, and I could have been really jealous of him. And it would have been wrong. Why? Because he had every right to walk the West Highland Way faster than me, even with an injured leg. You can tell it still gets to me. Now, God's jealousy is not like that. It is not the same thing as the world's idea of jealousy. You see, God's jealousy is a righteous jealousy. Now, the word jealous here can mean zealous. And God has a righteous zeal for who he is as the sovereign ruler over the universe and for what belongs to him as the creator and the saviour of his people. And it's, and it's a rightful jealousy. Now here's a challenge for a Christian, and it's this. Do I share that zeal for the honour and the glory of God? In my life, in my relationships, in my streets, in my university, in my office, in my family, in my church... Do I share that zeal for the honour and the glory of God? It is a powerful motivation. And now the second thing we find here about God's justice is that God is an avenging God. His righteous jealousy leads to action. If you look at the rest of verse 2, look at what it says. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Now, the people of Nineveh were very unpleasant, and that is a major understatement. They would torture their victims and they would burn their cities. In Nahum chapter 2, verses 1, verse 11, we get a picture of Nineveh as a lion preying on her victims. Listen to this. Where now is the lion's den? The place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs, and strangled to prey for his mates, filling his lairs with the kill, and his dens with the prey. They were ruthless, but they forgot something. Although God is slow to anger, he is sure to judge, and they would face God's retribution. Now, the thing to know about God's vengeance is this. It's not like our vengeance. 
For example, last week AC Milan were playing Inter Milan in the quarter-final Champions League in Italy. Does anyone know that? I don't know that. Now, Inter Milan were losing 1-0, okay? And if you're Scottish, then I'm sure you can empathise with that. We're quite good at that. However, in their anger, several Inter Milan supporters got their revenge. And how? By throwing flares at the AC Milan players. It was a blatant act of vengeance. And that, says the Bible, is wrong. Leviticus chapter 19, we read, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. So then, how can we say that God is an avenging God? Well, it's because he is God. And his vengeance is just. You see, it's a proof of his goodness. As verse 3 says, The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. He is a God of justice. James Bruckner, in his NIV application commentary, writes about God's perfect justice. This is what he says. Goodness does not always entail the forgiveness of evil deeds or the removal of their consequences. God's goodness is also found in the fact that vengeance belongs to Yahweh. And we see that, and we see that in verse 14 and 15. This is what we read. The Lord has given a command concerning you never. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the, car- the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So we stand in awe at the justice of God. And secondly, we stand in awe at the power of God. In verse 3 we read, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And we find here that God has power over creation. Now, being born and raised in Scotland, one of my ambitions is to climb all the Monroes in Scotland. Okay? So here's why. I think we've got a picture of this, by the way. So here's what, and that is not me, by the way, okay? In case you're wondering. That is not my kilt. So here's what I did. I got all the gear. I got the Bergus tops. I got the Gore-Tex jacket. I got the Scarpa walking boots. And of course, the Kendall mint cake. I was ready for the challenge of a lifetime. That was six years ago. Now, guess how many I've climbed. How did you guess that? You're right. One, Ben Lomond. At least it's a star, okay? We got to the top, exhausted, and I couldn't see a thing. All I could see were clouds. I couldn't even see the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. Now, in these verses, we are reminded that God is the creator. He made the Monroes, and he is sovereign over creation. Verse 3 says, His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. The mountains, listen to this, quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. God is great in power. And Moses knew that in the Old Testament. 
Remember in Exodus chapter 19, we find Moses on Mount Sinai. He was about to receive the Ten Commandments. And God came to Moses on that mountain in a dense cloud. And here's what happened next. Listen to this. The whole mountain trembled violently. Think about that. The mountain trembled. Why? Because God came down. The awesome power of God. Secondly, God has power over nations. You see, it's not supremely the G8 or the United Nations. It is God. And that is what Assyria was to find out. And here are some facts about Nineveh, Assyria's capital city. Its population was around 300,000 people. Quite a big city. And it had been there for 4,500 years. In Genesis chapter 10, we read that Nimrod, one of the founding fathers of civilization, built Nineveh. And it was well fortified. The city had three lines of protective walls reaching 100 feet high. And it had moats all around it. Fortress Nineveh was impregnable. So she thought. But God would destroy this invincible city. In Nahum chapter 3, God says to Nineveh, you're going to go the same way as Thebes in Egypt. You'll be judged for your wickedness. And that's what happened. In 612 BC, under the command of Nabopolassar, I think that's how you pronounce his name, Nineveh fell before a combined allied assault of Babylonians and Medes. She would never rise again. And if you go to the British Museum in London, you'll actually find a stone tablet there on the screen describing Nineveh's fall. Nineveh, this great military force, was powerless against God. This is what A.W. Tozer writes about God's awesome power. This is what he says. Since he has at his, at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God Omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. Think about that. All his acts are done without effort. And here's what this means for us. It is that same powerful God who changes people's lives. And that is amazing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. The Lord is great in power. Now let me ask you a question. Do you ever look up at the sky at night, look at the stars, and feel so small in this massive universe? Well, recently, the, the Huygens spacecraft sent us back some pictures of Titan, Saturn's moon, 800 million miles away. And it took seven years to get there. That is amazing. But it's nothing. Our nearest star is 24 trillion miles from the Earth. And your brain can hurt even just trying to think about that. And it can make us feel so small in this awesome universe. So does this powerful creator God really care about me? Well, we find the answer here. And it's yes. And so finally, we can stand in awe at the compassion of God. If you look at verse 7, we find a reminder of the unchanging goodness of God. 
Verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. It's a message of comfort. And that's what the word Nahum means, actually means. It means comfort. Now there are two things to notice here about God's goodness. The first is that God is our refuge. In Psalm 46 verse 1 we read, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Now you may know the story of Corrie ten Boom. Her story is told in the book, The Hiding Place. There was a true story set in the Second World War. And during the war, Corrie ten Boom's home became a refuge. It was a hiding place for those being hunted by the Nazis. And it's that picture of refuge that we find here of God. You see, God is not some aloof and distant creator. This powerful creator God really does care about you and me. And if you look at verse 7, that's what we find. This is what it says. He cares for those who trust in him. Now literally, the word cares for, it means knows. And here's what it's speaking about. It is speaking about being in a personal relationship with God himself. And we find this supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross and rose again. Why? So we could have a relationship with this great, awesome God. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, puts it like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that word believe is all to do with the word trust that we find here in Nahum. Let me ask you this question. What does it mean to trust in Christ? Maybe you're exploring what it means to be a Christian. So what does it mean to put your trust in Jesus Christ? We'll take the example of Blondin, the famous tightrope walker. One day in 1860, a huge crowd was gathering as Blondin crossed in the Andrew Falls. He had crossed it numerous times before. A 1,000 foot trip, 160 feet above the raging waters. They not only walked across it, he also pushed a wheelbarrow across it. The things people do. And one boy just stared in amazement. So Blondin looked at this little boy and he said, Do you believe I could take a person across in the wheelbarrow without falling? Yes, sir, the boy replied. I really do. Now here's what Blondin said. Well then, get in, son. He had to trust. And here's the point. Those who put their complete trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who receive Jesus into their lives, come into a life-changing relationship with this awesome God. And they're kept safe forever. And that is the greatness of Christ. So, in conclusion, we have looked at the greatness of God. God is great in his justice, God is great in his power, and God is great in his compassion. Someone who has this big vision of God is Jackie Pullinger. Now Jackie is from England, 
But she had a real passion to care for people and tell them about Jesus in a place called the Walled City in Hong Kong. Now, the Walled City was notorious for its triad gangs and its drug abuse. It was described as a cesspool of iniquity. But Jackie still went there. So why did she go? Because she stood in awe at the justice of God. She shared God's righteous zeal for his glory in the walled city. And she stood in awe at the power of God. She knew that only the power of God could transform these people's lives. And she stood in awe at the compassion of God. She knew that the God she served is good. And she wanted other people to find in Jesus a refuge and a security forever. From her own life, she could echo these words. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Let's pray.